We are now in our fifth week in our series, uh, Genesis Part 2, Abraham's Story. And uh, I can actually start saying Abraham now, because we're at the point in the story where Abram has become Abraham. Uh, God has given both Abram and Sarai their new names of Abraham and Sarah, which are symbols, signs of the fact that God has made this promise with them, that through them, uh, they are going to have descendants who bless all the nations of the world. It's been kind of tricky the last few weeks because sometimes I say Abram, sometimes I say Abraham. I never know which one to say, but now I can finally just say Abraham, not hold back. So the passage we're looking at today is in Genesis 18. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can uh, start making your way there now. And the part we're going to be focusing on is in the second half of this chapter. Uh, it's, uh, it's a part that's sometimes called when Abraham pleads for the city of Sodom. And it's a passage that I personally just find really, really fascinating. In fact, when we started this series, I had this passage in mind as the one that I was most excited to dig into uh, when it when we got to this point. So I'm happy to be doing this. It's a really interesting uh, conversation between God and Abraham. But before we get to that part, we need to talk a little bit about the first half of chapter 18, which is also pretty fascinating too. Uh, we're told that Abraham is visited by three men, but these are not just any ordinary men. In fact, the first verse of the chapter says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And then the second verse says, Abraham saw three men standing nearby. So there is something synonymous with the Lord appearing and with these three men appearing. And the text never makes it abundantly clear how those two things are the same. Um, it's possible that this is a hint of something that we would later come to understand, that God has this triune nature, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But whatever the case, uh, these three men symbolize the presence of the Lord. Their being there is synonymous with the Lord being there. So these three men arrive, and Abraham treats them very well. He's very hospitable to, to them. He makes a meal for them. And they tell him that by this time next year, they are going to return and Sarah will have a son. So you might remember that about 25 years ago, when Abraham was 75 years old, he was given a promise that he would have descendants. And he and Sarah have been waiting for a long time. And now, just a year shy of his 100th birthday, he's told that this is finally going to come true. And Sarah just thinks it's so unbelievable that she laughs. She can't, she can't even fathom that this is actually going to happen at this point in her life. And so this is where we're picking up in the story. So chapter 18, starting in verse 16. It says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. So these men are heading towards this place called Sodom, which raises the question, well, what is Sodom? Well, I'd say at this point in the story, we know three things about this place. First, it is very wicked, a very wicked place. 
Uh, in, back in chapter 13, it said, The men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. This is a place uh, where, uh, ethically speaking, it's a disaster. Okay? Uh, second thing we know, it was saved by Abraham. Um, you might remember a few weeks ago we talked about how Abraham led 318 men from his household into a battle. And the, the, the main reason he did this was to rescue his nephew, Lot, who had been captured. But a side effect of the whole thing is that he ended up defeating a king who was trying to take over Sodom. So Sodom still exists in part because of Abraham's efforts. Abraham is a war hero. And you could understand how maybe Abraham feels like he's got a little bit of stock in this city. He wants to see this city succeed because it's only there still because of what he's done. And then the third thing we know is that Abraham's nephew Lot lives there. So he's another reason for him to have personal stock in this city, right? He's got family there. It's actually the same family member that he went to war to save. So these three men, they go to leave, and they're walking towards Sodom, and Abraham is walking with them, you know, because he's a good host. You know, when, when, when somebody leaves your house, when you're hosting them, you don't stay at the dinner table and just wave goodbye, right? You walk with them. Usually you walk with them to the door. Sometimes you walk with them to the car. Abraham is being like the, the kind of host that goes out and sits, you know, with his arms folded on the car while you're sitting in it, and he's still talking to you. He's being a good host, walking with these, these three men. And then we're told that the Lord thinks something to himself. And this is what the Lord thinks. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So God's thinking, okay, I really should tell Abraham what I'm about to do here. So he says to him, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, is anyone else confused by those verses there? I find them confusing because, I don't know about you guys, but I don't usually think about God as needing to go down somewhere to check something out, right? Isn't that kind of weird? Uh, we live in a time where we have the benefit of the whole Bible to inform our understanding of God. Uh, when this was written, that was not the case. And we recognize now that God is omniscient. Right? It's a fancy theological word for meaning God knows everything. Right? God doesn't need to mount an investigation to go down to some city <clears throat> to find out what's happening there. God already knows. He knows everything there is to know, God knows. Right? That's what it means for God to be omniscient. So why does God tell Abraham, I'm going to go down there and investigate. I'm going to go down there and find out what's really going on, and if it's as bad as these rumors that I've been hearing. Well, here's what I would say about this. My best guess is that this is another example of God speaking to people 
in ways that they can understand. God's, he's good at contextualizing things for people. He cares that when he speaks, people are going to be able to hear him. For example, a few weeks ago, we talked about how Abraham needed reassurance that God's promises were trustworthy. So what did God say? God said, well, go cut up some animals. And we're like, what? What is that all about? But when you look into it, you find out that there was this ancient Near Eastern ritual where if you wanted to make a promise and assure the other person that your word was trustworthy, you would take some animals, which were very valuable in that time period, you'd cut them in half, you'd put them parallel to each other, and then you'd walk between them, which was your way of saying, may it be to me as what has happened to these animals if I break my word. And that was an ancient Near Eastern ritual. That wasn't God's thing necessarily, right? But that was speaking to Abraham in a way that he could understand. It was assuring Abraham of his promise in a way that was meaningful to Abraham. And so I think when God says that he's going to go down and investigate Sodom, he's doing something similar. He is communicating to Abraham in a way that he will understand. And if I had to guess... This is what God is communicating by saying this. He's saying, I'm not quick to judge. I'm not a God who just lays waste to a city on rumors alone. I'm a God who looks into what's going on. I'm a God who is, does not act rashly, right, but really makes an effort to know what's happening. Um, he's a God who makes his judgments based on personal experience, not on hearsay. He is, he is slow to bring judgment. He's not rash. I think that's what God is trying to get across to Abraham here and what we should understand when we read this now today. And here's where things get really interesting. So this is the part that I was excited to get to. Uh, starting in verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham, Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said... <laughs> Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, 
But let me speak once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Now, I find this exchange really fascinating and really beautiful. Because if I was to distill the essence of this back and forth, this is what it is. It's basically Abraham repeatedly asking, are you this merciful? Are you this merciful? And every time, God answers, yes, I am that merciful. Now, I've heard it said before that this is when Abraham bargains with God or when Abraham haggles with God. You know how when you go to certain places in the world, if you go to a marketplace, you don't just pay what's on the price tag, you haggle with the merchant. You know, you might say something like, oh, I'll pay you $10 for this. And they say, oh, no, 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 30, it's $30. And then you say, well, I'll pay you 15. And they're like, oh, no, 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 25. And then maybe you meet in the middle at 20, right? But what I want us to notice is this is not haggling here. I regret that when the What's Happening uh, email went out to all you guys this week, it said that the sermon title was Abraham Bargains with God. That's my mistake. Because I realized as I was looking into this, this is not bargaining. There's no bargaining going on here. If there was bargaining going on here, God would have started by saying, I'm going to destroy the city if there's less than 100 righteous people in there. And then Abraham would say, oh, God, what if there's only 10? And God would be like, are you crazy, Abraham? No way. Maybe for 90 I could do it. And then Abraham would say, well, what about 20? Right? And they'd work their way to the middle. But that's not what this is. This isn't that at all. Right? It's just Abraham repeatedly asking that question. Are, are you this merciful? Are, are you even more merciful? Are you even more merciful? And every time God says, yeah, I'm that merciful. I am that merciful. I think it's so important for us to recognize this because you probably know what happens to Sodom, right? You know what comes next. It's not spared, okay? The city is destroyed. It's judged. And some of us coming from our modern perspective, you know, might think that that's a sign that this God is not merciful. This God is impatient. This God is temperamental, Right? You know, that whole idea that, like, well, the God of the Old Testament's really mean and the God of the New Testament's nice. Uh, but this passage puts all that in context. Okay, we can't think that way because before Sodom is destroyed, we have this exchange where God repeatedly affirms, I'm really merciful. I'm more merciful than you think. Are you this merciful? Yes, I am that merciful. Now, I've come up with a list of a few things that I think we should learn from this exchange. And this is the first one, which ties in with what I've been saying so far. If you're taking notes, first one on your outline, destruction is God's last resort. Destruction is God's last resort. You know, there's this perception that people today have, especially about the God of the Old Testament, that he just has no patience at all. This perception that if any human being was in God's place, that human being would be way more patient and merciful than God. 
But this exchange right here tells us that's not true. It tells us that God would put up with a city of astoundingly wicked, vile people just for the sake of ten righteous people living in it. Now, how astoundingly wicked were these people? Um, Well, I'm not going to go into the details there. Uh, We don't need to get into the gory details of that this morning. But if you read chapter 19, that gives you some of the gory details. So if you want to do that on your own, uh, you can can do that. We also get a clue of how awful the people in Sodom were uh, by... What that word outcry, remember God said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great. And that word outcry, it's a word that in the Hebrew implies that people are crying out because of pain on account of injustice, violence, assault. You know how when you hear stories about people being treated terribly and being attacked and assaulted, it gets you upset, right? Okay, this is what God's hearing day after day, the outcry of people who are being attacked, wounded uh, by Sodom and Gomorrah. So I suspect that if most of us, most human beings, knew what God knew, heard these cries on a regular basis, and had the power to act the way God can, we would be much less patient. We would be much quicker to act. And... If you don't believe me, consider how much we are inclined to accept the concept of collateral damage in war. Now, I'm not saying we should be accepting of that. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying it seems to me that, generally speaking, throughout the course of history, human beings have had this attitude that says, well, you know, when there's an evil movement or person that is, you know, uh, affecting the world, We are justified in having military intervention, and of course, when that intervention takes place, there's always some collateral damage, right? There's always some relatively innocent people that are harmed or hurt, but you know what? That's just the way it is. We have to do this for the greater good, right? This is the way that that people often think, right? But in this exchange, God reveals that he has very little tolerance for collateral damage, right? Because even if a whole city is hopelessly wicked and vile, he'd rather spare it for the sake of ten righteous people than just have those ten righteous people as collateral damage. That's way more merciful than most of us are inclined to be. So destruction, condemnation, right? these things are not God's first choice. They're not his second choice, third choice, fourth choice. They are the last resort. As long as there is hope for redemption, God withholds judgment. So that's the first thing I want us to see. Second thing I'd like us to see is a few righteous people can change a city. A few righteous people can change a city. God says that he'll spare the city, right, if there's just ten righteous people. And that raises the question, why doesn't God just destroy the city but take the ten righteous people out of it? Seems like that would be a good way to do it, right? And honestly, I think there's just one answer that makes sense to that question of why God doesn't do that. It's because God knows if there's ten righteous people in a city 
there's still hope for that city. There's still hope for that city to be changed and to be transformed. Jesus said something like this in uh, Matthew 13. He told these parables about how the kingdom of heaven works. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And then he followed it up with a similar parable about yeast. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So in both of these parables that Jesus tells about how his kingdom works, there's this idea that there's something very small, right, that then goes boom, right? Uh, A tiny little seed turns into a huge tree, a tiny bit of yeast causes this whole loaf of bread to change and rise and, and get bigger. So something seemingly insignificant grows and causes transformation, And of course, the kingdom of God doesn't literally spread through seeds and yeast, but it does spread and grow through people, small groups of people often, who seem insignificant, right? Who seem uh, too, uh, too small to make a difference, too underfunded to make a difference, too under resourced. So when I read this dialogue and I get to the end there, I think, we have to be so careful not to underestimate what God can do through us. You know, what God can do through a small church or through a campus ministry or through a a humble nonprofit. There is more power and potential there than we often realize. Because if God believed that just 10 righteous people could have an effect on a place as vile and backwards as Sodom, How much more should we think that our church can affect Willington or Willimantic or the Yukon campus? Another metaphor that Jesus uses to describe who we are and the influence that we can have is salt. He said, you are the salt of the earth. And you might wonder, well, what does that mean? Well, In those days, they didn't have refrigeration the way we do now. So if you wanted to preserve meat, you put salt on it. Salt functioned as a a preservative. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, it's kind of like he's saying, you are like a preservative that keeps this world from spoiling. You are like a preservative in your society, in your city, on your college campus. You help to keep things from rotting. That's what you're supposed to do. And what I want us to see is that in this exchange between Abraham and God, we learn that a little dash of salt can go a long way in preserving a society, a culture, a campus. And so I want us to be inspired by that this morning. I think our inclination is more to underestimate the power of influence that God has given us than to overestimate it. Then finally, third thing I want us to see in this exchange is that God wants an authentic relationship with us. 
God wants an authentic relationship with us. There are at least three places in the Bible where Abraham is called God's friend. Even one place where uh, God specifically says, Abraham, my friend. And I think this is one of the places where we see this friend dynamic most on display. Remember, the whole exchange started with God saying to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That's the sort of thing that a friend says, right? I should let my friend know before I do this. He'll be disappointed if he finds out and I didn't tell him. He'll say, why didn't you tell me? I thought you were friends. I thought we were close. So the friend dynamic is evident in God deciding to tell Abraham about Sodom. But then it also comes through in the dialogue itself, right? Because Abraham speaks so openly with God. You know, far be it from you to do such a thing, God. He's saying, you know, God, you're supposed to be fair and just. You're not supposed to destroy righteous people. You're not going to do that, are you? No way you're going to do that. And notice, God never rebukes him for talking that way. You know, he never says, how dare you talk to me like that, you puny human being. I'm God, you're not. I have no other standard other than myself, so don't try to hold me to any standards. No, right? God doesn't say that. He's completely fine with Abraham's boldness, right? Abraham calling him to be faithful to himself. And so this morning, I want this passage to inspire us to have an authentic relationship with God. You know, we should see God as our Savior and our Master and our Lord, but we should also see him as our friend, right? Someone that we can be honest with, that we can approach boldly, um, and, and we, we should recognize that when we come to him honestly, authentically, he's not just going to say, get out of here, okay? He hears us out. Now, as we close, I want to finish with a quick thought experiment. What do you think would have happened if Abraham had pushed this conversation just a little further? You know, what if he had asked, will you spare the city for the sake of five people, two people, one people? Would God have still answered, yes, I am that merciful? Well, maybe you disagree with me, I don't know, but it seems to me that the pattern of this dialogue is hinting very strongly that if Abraham had kept going all the way to one person, God would have just kept saying yes. I mean, doesn't it seem strange to think that if Abraham had said, may I speak once more, Lord? What if there's just five people? That that time, God would have been like, uh, that's a bridge too far, Abraham. What do you, you think I'm crazy? I mean, 10, that's... But, but five, that's too far. That doesn't feel right at all. It feels out of character. It, it feels like any cutoff point after 10 would just feel arbitrary, right? So I think that this passage is hinting at a principle. And the principle is this. For the sake of one righteous person, God will spare the wicked. For the sake of one righteous person, God will spare the wicked. Now, question. 
When I say those words, does it remind you of anything? There's a Sunday school answer. It goes, Jesus. <laughs> we should realize that Jesus fulfills the principle that's taught through this dialogue. Because Jesus is and was the only one truly righteous human being who ever lived. And because of him, all of us sinful human beings can be spared. Although we have all failed to be righteous, we can be saved through Jesus' righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I realize that's, that's a confusing verse. There's a lot of concepts in there that might be hard to get our heads around. You could do a whole sermon just on that verse. But what it means is that Jesus was sinless, truly sinless, right? God made him who had no sin. He was the truly righteous human being. And yet he took on the consequences of sin. He who had no sin became sin, which means he experienced the effects of sin. He carried the weight of sin. That's what happened when Jesus suffered and died on the cross. He who had no sin became sin for us. And because of that, we are treated like righteous people. The righteousness of God is ours. We are spared for the sake of one righteous, God will spare the wicked. And all we need to do is trust and follow the one who is truly righteous. That's all that's asked of us. And when we do that, we escape the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. For the sake of the one righteous one, our lives are spared. In fact, the whole creation is spared. And if we, like Abraham, were to ask, God, are you really this merciful? God will answer, yes, I am that merciful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when Abraham talked to you here and he asked that question over and over, are you this merciful, that you said yes, yes, yes. And we thank you, Lord, that we can see now just how far your mercy extends. That you would offer your life through the one truly righteous person and spare all of us on his account. We give you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.